In the spring of 1992, I was nine years old, and I was vacationing with my family in sunny Orlando, Florida. We'd been at Universal Studios all morning when I wandered past a small merchandising kiosk with a thatch roof made to look like a jungle hut of some kind. And the kiosk counter was flanked by two small monitors that were running a teaser trailer for an upcoming film on a continuous loop. The only item being sold at the kiosk was the book on which this upcoming film was based. I could not believe what I saw. I was so distracted by the images, so struck by them, that I found myself returning to them constantly throughout the day. And my parents witnessed me awestruck, and though they were, they were pretty frugal and rarely bought us souvenirs or trinkets outside of sanctioned gift-giving occasions, they happily purchased this book. So undeniable was the impression it made on me in an instant. It became my first grown-up novel, uh, the first I ever read it. I was enamored with it. I read it slowly and carefully, not wanting it to end, and then I read it again, and then I read it again. And in the months that followed, leading up to the summer of 1993, I can scarcely overstate my anticipation for this movie. Everyone who knew me knew this about me. Adults would come up to me and say, how many days now, Josh? And I could tell them a number. <laughs> then, on June 11th, 1993, the day before my 10th birthday, my friends and I piled into my mom's Crown Victoria for a Saturday matinee at Eisenhower Cinemas in Savannah, Georgia. The lights dimmed in the sold-out theater, and these ominous notes rang out. <laughs> you hear that? We're going to listen to the whole thing. How's that, Sauls? You like it? Name this movie. Yeah, it was Jurassic Park. Now, what followed didn't just become a big deal to me personally. It was an all-out cultural phenomenon. If you were around at the time, it was the highest-grossing film of all time up to that point until it was dethroned by Titanic in 1998. I saw Jurassic Park seven times in movie theaters. I owned every action figure, every piece of merchandising I could acquire, regardless of its pragmatic relevance to a 10-year-old. My dad, for example, used the coffee mug, and I didn't. Um, I had a full Jurassic Park wardrobe. I had school supplies, a soundtrack on cassette and CD. I had models, and lunchbox, you know, glasses, bedding, posts. It was like my Star Wars. I programmed my VCR to tape talk show appearances that came on after my bedtime. Um, I taped every Entertainment Tonight special. I even taped an entire week of Jurassic Park-themed Regis and Kathy Lee episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I did my fifth grade social science fair project on the way Jurassic Park shaped visual effects in the movies. There I am. <laughs> All, really? But fun fact, you can see down there at the bottom of uh, the poster board, the crown jewel of the Jurassic Park toy collection, which was the T-Rex. Of course, my son has that T-Rex right there, right now. It's still intact and still works. It makes noise and everything. Now, when the VHS finally arrived in October of 1997, yes, it took that long, I kept a paper on my bedroom wall that I used to tally the number of times I had seen the movie, you know, for bragging rights right now. <laughs> when I'm an adult, when I'm an adult, this will pay off. Um, 
And when the tallies exceeded 26 viewings, I decided the effort was no longer necessary. My devotion was not in question. <laughs> For me, every moment, every frame of Jurassic Park is loaded, not just with nostalgia, but with a personal history that endures nearly three decades later. I was formed by it. A day in June when, for two hours, the incredible capacity to enter into another world, disbelief not just suspended, but bypassed altogether, to experience the transporting power of a movie. And I love movies as a result. I've seen Jurassic Park a lot, a lot more than the 26 now, especially now that my kids are watching it. The tallies continue to pile up, but there are other movies I don't really get tired of seeing as well, or that for one reason or another, I, I just keep on watching because I have questions or I'm curious about them. And what people who watch the same movies over and over and over again will tell you is that the more they watch the movie, the more they see what they didn't see before. Good art rarely gives up all its secrets easily on the first viewing or reading or listen, which is why books and documentaries have been released dissecting movies like Apocalypse Now or The Shining. It's why people still line up, travel all over the world to see, from all over the world to see Da Vinci's Mona Lisa or Van Gogh's Starry Night and why new generations of young people are still discovering the music of David Bowie. And there are reasons for this that go well beyond our basic enjoyment of these things. Reasons like we have questions about them or there are lingering ambiguities or mystery or intrigue. Some of it excites us and some of it kind of frustrates us, and some of it seems to slip through our fingers and we don't quite get it upon viewing 26 and beyond, and then you find yourself saying, wait a minute, how did I not notice this until now? This is huge. This changes everything. Good movies and books are that way. They're designed not to give up all their secrets the first time around. Good paintings and albums and performances are like that, and so is the Bible. So, Take the Bible, this library of writings that we carry around to church as disciples of Jesus, and open it somewhere around the middle to the collection of songs and poems that we call the Psalms. The first one in particular, Psalm 1. Once again, if we've never met, my name is Josh Porter. Contrary to popular belief, I don't actually work here. <laughs> uh, I did a few years back, and then I left to plant a church in Vancouver called Van City Church. Um, the news that I don't actually work here comes as a sobering revelation to many of you, I know. Uh, <laughs> many, <laughs> uh, many of you, I know, uh, are currently questioning whether or not you can, in good faith, continue to participate in a church that does not employ me. <laughs> you can. It's fine. But I do show up from time to time, and this week I started to wonder how often exactly. It's just starting to seem like a lot to me. And I wondered, like, am I on track to set some kind of record or something? The closest thing I could think of was uh, hosting Saturday Night Live. Um, <laughs> so I took the liberty of researching who has set records for hosting Saturday Night Live the most. Um, here are a few names from that list that you may recognize. Ben Affleck has hosted SNL five times. Scarlett Johansson is at six. Christopher Walken's at seven. Chevy Chase, eight. And America's dad, Tom Hanks, is at nine times hosting SNL, which isn't as much as John Goodman, who's hosted a whopping 13 times, not as many as Steve Martin, who hosted 15, and the all-time record goes to Alec Baldwin, who has hosted SNL 17 times. Wow. To date, I have reappeared uh, uh, since leaving to plant Van City at Bridgetown for cameo teachings eight times, which means, as you can see, that I'm clocking in real Chevy Chase numbers here. 
Thank you, yeah. But wait, today the total goes up to nine times, which means goodbye, Chevy. Hello, Mr. Hanks. I am a qualified, I asked a qualified designer friend of mine to represent these findings visually. And behold. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When he sent it back in three minutes or whatever it took to make this, he sent it back and he said, this is my magnum opus. So <laughs> thank you. I plan to update this list with each subsequent visit of mine, uh, unless, of course, this bit has made this the last time I'll be here. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I told John Mark I would leave him something good in the podcast. There it is. Now, the point is... Uh, I'm honored, honestly, to be, get to be here with you guys every time, truly. The church I planted um, was established out of this one and like this one on a foundation of, among other things, a deep, profound love for the Bible, which is anything but a popular or well-respected perspective. People have issues with the Bible. And part of that is, dare I say, justifiable, at least a little bit, given many awful things have been said and done in the name of the Bible. But another part of that is the unavoidable reality that the Bible has a lot to say about what is good and what is evil, what's right and what is wrong, and how you should think and live as a result. And people, as a general rule, don't like to be told those kinds of things. In fact, that's the mechanism that sets the Bible's story in motion. But in either extreme, I would argue we err when we read the Bible as an entirely literal and linear, one-size-fits-all manual for science or politics and life in the modern world. The Bible does have things to say about all those things, and the Bible does intend to impact the way we live. But the Bible's preferred means of doing that isn't with copy-paste do's and don'ts, but instead by forming us slowly over time. So let me explain what I mean using, what else, the Bible. Let's read from the very first Psalm, beginning in verse 1. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is really interesting because the Bible is describing itself as a work intended for ongoing consideration, or as the text puts it, meditation. The Bible is meditation literature. And in this short poem, Psalm 1, the author contrasts two very different kinds of people. You have the people who walk and stand and sit with the wicked, sinners, mockers, and then conversely, not like that, there are those who delight in the law of the Lord. The law in the Hebrew context can refer to the Torah, which is the first five books of our Old Testament, or it can refer to the teaching of an elder or a priest or a prophet, or it can refer to the covenant literature of Moses, or it can refer, as it does here, to biblical literature as a whole, meaning the psalmist is telling us how fortunate, how blessed is the one who delights in the Bible, 
How fortunate is the one who loves the scriptures. And not just that, but who meditates on what it says day and night. Many of us hear the word meditation and we think of something like yoga or sitting silently, emptying the mind, that sort of thing. And those things can be fine, but that's not at all what the author has in mind when he describes meditating on the law. Instead, the Bible has in mind a focused reader who intends to fill their thinking and feeling with profound truth woven into the Bible's beautiful and complex story. Psalm 1 is the Bible's way of describing its own ideal reader, someone who loves to read it, to read it carefully, thoughtfully, with ongoing consideration. Which explains a lot, really, as much of the Bible is set up to force the reader into this reading methodology. Let me show you an example of that. Turn to the left, all the way to the beginning of your Bible, to Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to have you guys flip around just a little bit tonight, but you'll be fine. I want to read a strange and familiar story, and I want to focus less on what the story includes and more on what it omits. So when you get to Genesis 4... Let's read beginning with the very first verse. Genesis 4.1, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his son, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks. We've jumped way forward in time, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. And of course, the story goes on, gets even weirder than that. Now, what a strange, dark, upsetting, and really a mysterious story because there's so much missing from the text. We go from Cain being jealous and upset, which seems pretty normal and relatable, Um, Then he's being warned by God about sin crouching at the door, this metaphorical kind of strange imagery. And then it's a hard cut to Cain going out into a field and killing his brother. We don't understand at this point why exactly he decided to do that beyond the basic motivation. What was he thinking at the time? How did he get there? And maybe this is the most glaring and most intentional gap in the story's details. What makes a person devolve from basic jealousy to murder? The story leaves the answer blank in order to force the reader into an exercise of wrestling with the text's implications. So look at it this way. If you are the Bible's ideal reader, the Psalm 1 reader who delights in the story of the Bible and meditates on it constantly, you might begin to notice certain parallels. 
Interestingly, God tells Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Which would remind the reader of a story that came just a little bit before this one, in which God presented someone with a choice. And he said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Meaning there's a good thing and an evil thing, and the characters in the story have the moral capacity to distinguish between and to choose one or the other. And the command from God, God's plea to Cain, also sounds really familiar. He says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it which would remind the reader again of something they just read a little earlier. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is a call to be a responsible steward of creation under God's um, leadership and in cooperation with God. And in the story of Cain, much like in the story of Adam and Eve, the protagonist fails in their call to rule. Instead, sin rules over them. And then consider the consequences. Because of sin, Cain, like Adam and Eve, is banished. In fact, it's the exact same word. He's driven from the land. He's cursed. And his experience of God's presence has been compromised. In the Jewish mind, being without a home, being a wanderer, meant vulnerability and isolation, no community. Being driven from the land meant being driven from God's presence, which meant no protection and no comfort, no security. Someone will kill me, Cain worries out loud to God. But the author doesn't make these connections themselves. They invite the reader to do that. And when that happens, the reader is left to wrestle with the other missing pieces. For example, Cain famously asks God, am I my brother's keeper? But the text doesn't tell us whether the question is sincere or facetious, and God doesn't answer him plainly. Is he? his brother's keeper. And God says that Abel's blood cries out from the ground, which is a really powerful image that will become a recurring motif in the Bible story, but we don't know that yet. For now, all we know is that God sees and is deeply concerned about the evil that took place in secret, so much so that his response is dire. And because of the glaring omission of Cain's motivation beyond just basic jealousy, the reader is forced to see themselves in this murderer, and ask the question, well, I've, I've been jealous. Have I allowed sin to rule over me? Am I allowing um, murder to fester in my heart? At what cost does my jealousy come? And what's next? And the ambiguity raises the stakes by not uh, filling in the gaps of what happens in the in-between. Now, of course, the missing details, what the story says by what, what it doesn't say, the parallels and what comes before and after it, All that the audience can and likely will miss some or all of that with a basic surface level reading, at least the first time around. But the Bible's ideal reader does more than reading the text like a manual for information or a simple story that communicates everything necessary for comprehension right there on the surface. The Bible anticipates that you will come back to read again and again and again, slowly and thoughtfully and carefully. And there's a practice for that but we'll get there in a bit. Let me show you something else. Turn to the right in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter eight. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. This is much later in the story. Moses is, uh, at this point, giving his final speech to Israel. He's reiterating the law. He's reminding them where they've been and what God has done for them. And then look down at Deuteronomy chapter eight, beginning with verse one. We read, be careful, 
to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So this is a fascinating, fascinating flashback to something that happened earlier in the story while Israel was wandering in the wilderness. There was bread from the sky. It was a whole thing. But then watch what happens. Turn one more time to the right, all the way to Matthew, first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4. This is another familiar story for most of you, I'm sure, in which Jesus of Nazareth, he gets empowered by God's spirit. He's also empowered by practicing spiritual disciplines. He's spent an ongoing period in silence and solitude. He's been fasting. And then the devil shows up, like sin crouching at the door to tempt him. Look at Matthew 4, beginning with verse 1. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. It's a familiar word, to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, familiar number, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Again, like in the wilderness, there was bread that was miraculously provided. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So during Jesus' sin crouching at the door moment, fascinatingly, he rules over sin, succeeding where Adam and Eve failed, where Cain failed, where Israel failed, by drawing from memory the scriptures. He quotes the Bible. And we know this is something on which Jesus had meditated because he's committed it to memory, for one thing, to the degree that he can call on the text in the necessary context at a moment's notice. But notice, it's not just that he quotes the Bible, it's that he has been formed by the Bible's wisdom so that he is able to call on its truth and import its wisdom, even from strange narratives about bread from the sky or an ancient dead guy who gave a speech centuries prior. And Jesus doesn't quote a line from the Old Testament to win an argument or to embarrass Satan or something like that. He's drawing on a deeply held truth developed from meditating on the scriptures so that he can rule over sin. The Bible is written by those who meditate on the scriptures and intended to create and steward further meditation and its subsequent readers so that the reader learns to move backward and forward through the text, uncovering more of the unified whole woven into seemingly disconnected stories and unanswered questions and troubling passages. And it is a staggering literary achievement, a beautiful and provocative work of art that combines narrative and poetry and discourse, uniquely crafted to be read and reread over a lifetime and to give up new dimensions of wisdom and truth with each new journey across its many pages. It's almost as if God himself were the co-author. This is why the Bible describes its own idea of an ideal reader in Psalm 1 as someone who delights in the story and who meditates on it day and night. I think many of us feel as if we're missing something with the Bible because we can't bring ourselves to love it the way we love other things that grab our attention. But to delight in the Bible, I think, is it's not that simple. Many of you know well that you can hold deep affection for a work of art that doesn't necessarily entertain you in the simple sense 
or it isn't just there for fun. And many of you know what it is to love a work of art that you don't fully understand, and that's part of why you love it, or to love a work of art that also bothers you. The Bible is so profoundly complex, I wonder why we think our appreciation of it would ever be simple. Many of us tend to think that there's really only one way to read. You just read. But there are several ways to go about reading the Bible. You can read it for study, academically, to unpack a particular story or passage. You can read it for memorization or as part of a daily reading plan or like any other book, just read from left to right until it's over. But to truly meditate on the scriptures, the church has historically emphasized a practice called Lectio Divina, which is Latin for divine reading. The premise of Lectio Divina dates all the way back to Origen in the third century. It thrived during the monastic movement in particular and on into the Protestant Reformation as well as in the Catholic Church. Lectio Divina is not study, at least not in the academic sense, nor a day in the annual reading plan, reading to be on track to finish reading. For centuries, disciples of Jesus have understood the practice of Lectio Divina as a means of meeting with God himself in the scriptures. And the process unfolds in five stages. You prepare to meet with God, read, reflect, respond, and then rest. You can use any passage of scripture for this practice. If you're brand new to the thing, I'd suggest maybe starting with the Psalms. They're usually kind of shortish or self-contained. Or the stories of Jesus and the Gospels are another great place to start. And here's how it goes. Once you've selected your passage, you prepare to meet with God, which means that you turn your phone off and leave it in another room. You situate yourself comfortably in a quiet, solitary place. You relax. You remember what it is that you're there to do. Don't just rush into it. You're right. I'm, I'm here to hear from God himself in the scriptures. You invite the Holy Spirit to guide your thinking and feeling as you read. You don't want just your own ideas. You want God's ideas in your mind and imagination. And then you read. You read the passage you've selected slowly and carefully and preferably out loud. Believe it or not, uh, classically and historically, meditation literature is intended to be read aloud as it slows the process and it channels your focus. So take your time. As you move through the text, pay close attention to what words and ideas draw your attention in unique ways. If something strikes you, then pause. You don't need to rush forward. Turn that word or phrase over in your mind before you move on to the next word or phrase. And then when you hit the end of the passage, stop, sit back, and reflect for a moment. Think about what you've just read, the whole of it. And then go back to the beginning of the passage and read it again. This time around, your second time, take the text personally. Don't just think about the original context of the passage. Think about how it intersects with you, your thinking, your feeling in that moment. Ask, what do I need to know or be or do in light of this text? What does this mean for my life today? And then you respond. You talk to God about your experience. It doesn't have to be groveling or pandering. You don't have to say, you know, oh, God, man, nice work on this whole Bible thing. I Understood everything I read. Fantastic word. Um, if you're confused, say that. If it upsets you, talk to God about that. Tell him um, how you feel and where it hits you and in what ways. If you're compelled to worship, spend some time in worship. If the text has brought something else to mind, talk to God about that particular thing. Remember, this is an exchange, not just words on a page, but delight and meditation, divine reading. 
And then the final step is to rest. Don't just slam the book shut and carry on with your day. Sit still for another moment. Sit in God's presence after you've talked and reflected, read, and remember you're here to be with God in God's presence. Whatever it is that you're feeling in light of the exercise, feel it knowing that you're in the presence of God himself. That's how it works. You prepare to meet with God, you read, reflect, respond, and then rest. The practice for your communities will be up at practicingtheway.org scripture. We get frustrated with the Bible. I see it all the time because the Bible won't just do what the heck we want it to do sometimes. It won't just explicitly answer certain theological questions or certain scientific questions. So Bill Nye has to go on TV to debate with some guy who built a museum and an ark, you know, to argue that people rode on dinosaurs or some such nonsense. Have you ever heard the, the Bible fundamentalist mantra? I'm sure many of you have. It says, it goes something like, the word clearly says which is hilarious because if that were true, we wouldn't have hundreds of splintering denominations and movements and thousands of debates and books and people like me making someone in this room or on the podcast twitch in their seat right now because I just inferred a few seconds ago that people didn't ride on dinosaurs. <laughs> I'm sorry for that. Believe me, I wish it were true. No one wishes it more than me. <laughs> but... <laughs> It was delayed, but it was gratifying. <laughs> we get frustrated with the Bible when we try to make it do what it doesn't intend to do. When my dad was alive, he provided our family endless entertainment with his take on movies, very much a dad movie guy. So he raised us to love Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. He liked action movies in particular. Um, explosions in particular. And we drag him to other kinds of movies because we enjoyed the man's company and he sometimes seemed baffled by their lack of explosions as if it was just that someone forgot to put them in there. It's like, it was nice, but it was, nothing blew up at all. Or, you know, he'd focus in on a nitpick that just would flabbergast the rest of us. Like, why is this what you're upset? My favorite, personal favorite, was when he couldn't bring himself to enjoy um, the 2008 sci-fi thriller Cloverfield because the movie's monster looked, and I quote to him, like a bat wearing flip-flops. <laughs> That's the monster, by the way. And it's a coincidence that it's also some kid's number up there <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> I didn't do that on purpose. Your child is not a monster, I'm sure, I'm sure. A bat wearing flip-flops. The rest of us were like, not really. And why, why is this the thing you're zeroing in on? But really, we do the same thing. We get frustrated by our distractions of what we expect the Bible to do and it doesn't, and we get hung up on a thing that isn't even there to distract us. The Bible can be frustrating, and honestly, I believe there are times when it, in, it intends to be frustrating, but I think most of our frustration comes from us wanting to go fast when the Bible wants to go very slow. The Bible is designed as the kind of literature one reads day and night for a lifetime without exhausting the layered riches within. And that's meant to encourage you rather than dissuade you from reading. So success for a reader of the Bible doesn't usually look like referencing the text for life lessons or like an encyclopedia, but rather in moving backward and forward, long bouts and short sessions, slowly and carefully with ongoing consideration and new insights 
as you grow and are shaped and formed by the text itself over time. Now, to be clear, you are absolutely meant to grow in competency and confidence as you read and learn, but it's not like you crack the code for the literal and linear manual for life in the modern world. You understand that as you are formed, you will continue to uncover new riches in the bottomless depths of wisdom and artistry the scriptures have to offer. After all, this is a library of writings that all disciples of Jesus have held throughout church history to be inspired by God himself and thus authoritative over the disciples' life. That is a book that warrants reading. We delight in even the ambiguity of the scriptures because they are an invitation to go deeper and to wrestle and to know more and in that process to meet God himself in the text. And we need each other for that. Among the ancient Jewish manuscripts that came to be known famously as the Dead Sea Scrolls, one such document was known as the Manual of Discipline. And then later it was renamed as the Community Rule. And in it, the ancient Jewish community refers to the Bible as, and I quote, the scroll of meditation. And they use the exact same word from Psalm 1. For centuries upon centuries, thousands of years, those who delight in the Bible, who meditate on it day and night, have also understood that the complex beauty of this library is too great for one mind to contain. It requires entire communities of men and women, young and old, dedicated to the kingship of Jesus, to the authority of the text, and to pondering what it says and working out what it means together, never in isolation. And think of that imagery from Psalm 1, the one who delights in and meditates on the Bible is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. There's more at stake here than a daily duty. This book, this library of writings, both human and divine, has a unique power to form you. For some of you, sin is crouching at your door or you are standing in the way that sinners take, to quote the psalm. And this story, if you let it, can shape you into a powerful tree that refuses to be uprooted from the way of Jesus. Some of you have been reading this thing to collect pull quotes or win arguments, skimming the surface rather than doing the hard work of slowing down. And like many of you, I'm sure, I've had a wild ride with the Bible. I was raised in an environment that understood the Bible more as a rule book than a story. But now as an adult and as a pastor, the perspective I encounter most is the one that's fine with the Bible as a story as long as it doesn't tell me how to live. But it's both things. This is a story, but it's a story designed by God to change you. It's a story that intends to mold your perspective on what is right and wrong and how to think and talk and live, how to treat other people, how to handle money and sexuality and every single thing into which most people don't welcome correction or interference of any kind. And it doesn't always wear every one of those things on its sleeve. And at both Bridgetown and at Van City, I've been in dozens of conversations in which I find myself pleading with people who are troubled by the Bible, yes, it is a story, but it is also the truth. But it's a story about you and me and God. It's a story meant to change us. It's not just food for thought. It's not an interesting but flawed document from another time and place. It is both ancient and timeless, at times figurative, 
And at other times, literal. There's history and there's parables. There's poems and there's narrative. There's hyperbole, over-the-top hyperbole, and there's subtlety, so subtle you miss it the first time. And if it's all of those things in one book, we are going to have to read it carefully because in all of this waits the truth for the reader willing to seek it out. You don't have to have a Bible degree. You can come ready to delight and to meditate on the Scriptures day and night. This is how you follow Jesus. And for most of you, the most meaningful way to engage the Scriptures right now will likely be Lectio Divina, the slow reading before God to read, reflect, respond, and then rest. The art lovers in the room, I'm sure, know that that wonderful sensation of a novel or a film or a piece of music or a visual that needles into you and, and haunts your imagination, that challenges you and takes you from one place to another. That power is here in the scriptures, and it's from God. You don't have to be an art lover to imagine that spending time in a story, the same story, day after day with a community of people around you doing the same thing for years, that will take root in your thinking and feeling. And the outgrowth of this lifelong community-wide endeavor is that your life itself flourishes and thrives like a tree, strong and fruitful, roots reaching deep in nourishing ground. When we sit with this book, an ancient and tactile invitation that you hold in your hand wherever you're at and where, whatever you've, wherever you've been, you step into the story of God. And we can rest in ambiguity and delight in the strangeness of it and wrestle with the questions that it raises and marvel at the beauty and wonder of it all slowly, carefully, one morning at a time, one reading at a time for a lifetime.